Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, evolving methods of providing legal service, and law practice issues. My name is Mary Vandenack, founder and managing partner at Vandenack Weaver LLC. I'll be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about closely held business, tax, trusts and estates, legal technology, law firm leadership, and well-being. Before we start today's episode, I want to thank our sponsor. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. There's always a resistance to change, particularly with attorneys. Attorneys like to look back at what's worked in the past, and that makes a lot of sense. But when you realize that with a good automated drafting system, you can do a better job for your clients, deliver documents on a more timely fashion, in a more consistent and in a more costly manner. If you're not a subscriber to Interactive Legal, I urge you to go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. And you'll be contacted about having a demonstration of Interactive Legal for you, which can be done right over the Internet. Don't have to leave your office. No salesperson will call. We can arrange it at a time inconvenient for you. So please go to interactivelegal.com and click on Request a Demo. Today's episode is on current trends in healthcare law. My guest is Stephanie Sharp, who has recently joined us at Vandenack Weaver. Stephanie has an extensive background in the healthcare arena as well as working with businesses. We are going to talk today about what to expect as far as changes in the healthcare law sector. Thanks for joining us today, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. So what do you think a few of the top trends in healthcare this year will be? You know, I think with COVID-19 and the pandemic, we really saw um, an adoption and a move towards enhancing telemedicine and the use of technology in the delivery of care to patients. So do you think there's going to be any changes to fee models? I think so. You know, I mean, we've there's been this push from the federal government to try to um, provide higher quality care at lower costs. And so we're seeing sort of a move towards capitated rates, um, value-based reimbursement, um, pay for performance, right? Having the quality initiatives in place and then paying for um, quality metrics, et cetera. I can see that um, continuing to be a trend into the future. And I understand there's some reform going on in the Stark and anti-kickback areas. What is that looking like? Yes, there was extensive um, legislation pushed pushed out that um, revamps Stark and anti-kickback. And in a lot of ways, it brings it into 2021, where, you know, the age of technology and the interoperability of um, electronic health records and the sharing of information. And so it provides, um, you know, some new uh, definitions for different key terms, um, clarifications on old rules, and also really allows for, you know, the movement towards a more, you know, technologically advanced um, delivery of healthcare. So do you have a specific example you might be able to give on the technology for, let's say, telemedicine's grown, right? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the areas was that mental health providers, there were issues with them. Is that 
possibly a change or is Absolutely. that? Well, and I think even with COVID, I mean, we've even pre COVID, there was a, a trend towards, you know, um, physician and healthcare provider burnout. And I think with COVID, we, we enhanced that even more. And so I think that it's, you know, and I think everyone's um, really kind of seen that it's important to address and identify the healthcare or of the, the providers themselves and their mental health and well-being. And so absolutely. And I know there are some initiatives in place to try to enhance that for our providers. So what is the current trend in relation to affiliations? You know, it's interesting because there's a lot of articles out there on, you know, we're seeing um, increased movement of physicians um, across health systems, but that at the same time, you're seeing articles that state that there's been an increase in the number of physicians who are now employed by health systems versus independent um, following the pandemic. But at the same time, you're also seeing increased rates of physician dissatisfaction with employers, um, maybe spawned by the additional workload of COVID for some um, practitioners. And so there's just movement in the industry. I mean, I can see it going both ways. Some practices are leaving and others are going out to to become independent, um, et cetera. Well, we've certainly seen and formed, I think, in both of our practices, more independent healthcare providers this year than we had for a while. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Omaha in the Midwest is kind of a market that's always been kind of ripe for that. We've always had a really good, strong, um, independent physician practice presence in our state. Um, and I think that the physicians are happy doing that. And I think that, um, you know, I could see, you know, especially with, you know, you saw some of the bonuses that maybe the large health systems wanted to push out this year being held back. I could see physicians getting dissatisfied with that. I think the other added, um, component of it is when you get large corporate healthcare systems in play that, you know, have offices that aren't local, that can kind of break down that relationship between the facility and the provider, which really can, you know, spawn or spur a physician or a physician group to go out on their own. Because I know one of the questions that I've gotten asked a lot in the last year when asked to review an employment agreement going into one of the major institutions is, well, just the thing I care most about is how I get out of this agreement if I decide not to stay. I want to understand the termination provisions. Absolutely. The termination and then what restrictive covenants you might have post-employment. I mean, I think, you know, we're a little bit lucky in Nebraska because we've got some, you know, laws on the books or, you know, some case law that really kind of frowns upon that non-compete. But in other states, um, those non-competes and the non-solicitations and the region that they can um, basically carve you out of working in can be very large. And so it's very important for physicians, I think, to, to review those up front and negotiate those. And we see those, we see agreements from all across the country for a variety of reasons, and they dramatically vary. But sometimes what we see is the same, like one company that's in multiple states sticks the same provision in all of these agreements without considering the state specific. Absolutely. In Nebraska, that's kind of advantageous sometimes. I'm like, yeah, leave it in there. Because in Nebraska, they're just going to ax it out, right? In Iowa, they're going to, they might what do they call that? They will take the, the red pencil roll and rewrite it for you, but each state is different. Mm -hmm. So it's always worthwhile to make sure before you sign an employment agreement, particularly to the extent there's a non-compete wherever you are in the country, to have that looked at to see how it's going to apply to you. Absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, maybe 40 years ago, 50 years ago, and this is true for maybe all industries, there was a longer term longevity of um, employees and employers working together. And I think, um, you know, in the current state, you see, you know, physicians depart more frequently, move to other health systems, um, et cetera. So I think it's very important, as you said, to have that upfront review. And even if you're not going to negotiate your agreement or you're not going to make any changes to understand at least what the ramifications are, or what you're actually signing, very important. So what impact do you think COVID-19 is going to have on the healthcare sector in a go forward basis over the next few years? 
You know, I think that with COVID-19, we saw sort of a change to maybe the standard of care as it relates to sanitation and, um, you know, uh, the spread of, of germs and airborne pathogens, et cetera. And so I think that's impacted. So we've, um, I think we're still going to see kind of the fallout of COVID and, and lawsuits. And I mean, we live in a litigious society anyway, but I think now we're going to see an increase um, potentially in claims. I think uh, the telemed piece is going to continue to, to stay at the forefront um, as well. So we are planning on a separate series to cover asset protection planning in general, but that's a really important topic. So I like to at least touch on that whenever I can. How are the new delivery models impacting reimbursement? Well, so um, with reimbursement, I think one really big area that we've moved into is sort of the telemed, as, I, as we discussed. And, you know, some states, and, and you're kind of seeing legislation get pushed out post-pandemic around this is, you know, parity for um, the coverage of telehealth. Not all, not every state has true parity. Nebraska is one such state. They don't mandate that you pay the same amount for an in-person versus a telehealth visit, but other states do. And I think that we're going to see a push potentially for um, greater parity with respect to um, telemedicine visits and payment. There was also a really big push to include additional codes in that um, coverage so that we can start to enhance, you know, and provide care in other ways, um, in other service lines as well as how it has been traditionally, um, you know, given out. So are we seeing changes in the employment model models and rules in the healthcare industry? So I think one of the big pieces with the employment is just, um, you know, uh, the concept of the remote worker. I mean, I think in the healthcare spe- sector, some of that isn't always applicable because we have the direct patient care, but um, especially in the healthcare sector where, you know, HIPAA is implicated and you've got maybe your, your backend staff working from home. I mean, I think that absolutely the employment um, arena has been impacted with COVID, certainly. And I have heard you talk about predictive analytics in providing care. Can you explain that? Yeah. So Mount Sinai had a, an article come out and they created sort of a machine driven predictive model to identify patients who are at highest risk uh, for significant negative health impacts following a COVID diagnosis. And I think that what we're going to see is sort of a push. I mean, that was well adopted, well received to kind of triage maybe our um, acute disease or um, chronic conditions and figure out, you know, predict, use predictive um, analytics to try to care for patients and be more um, pragmatic about our approach, perhaps. And what do you anticipate happening with vaccination mandates? That's been a really interesting area. You know, I think that's a huge hot topic right now. And while it's permissible, I think you've got a lot of public opinion on on wh- whether it's, you know, should be allowed or not. Um, re- recently, I had a visit with a nurse friend and, you know, she had indicated that her local health system, if, if they pushed out a, a COVID mandate at her organization, she'd be retiring early, which we already have a nursing shortage. And so um, it'll be interesting to see how, um, you know, employee um, response to it drives some of the um, organizational's organizations' um, mandates. And I think we've seen some employers who are saying we are going to strongly recommend it, we're going to inform, we're going to, you know, help find ways to get people vaccinated, but we're just not going to mandate it. It's exactly. kind of been the trend so far. So far. But if you continue to see mutations that are super infectious that might change particularly for the healthcare industry, Absolutely. Well, I mean, right now I know for, you know, some of the large health systems here, your annual flu vaccine and your um, tuberculosis test is a requirement annually, unless you fit within some of the, you know, um, religious type of, um, you know, outliers. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to watch. Well, we've had a change in the presidency. And other than that, we see a lot less tweets every morning on the news. What might happen in the healthcare industry? 
related to that change. Absolutely. Well, I think every president understands that healthcare is such a critical and large piece of the um, federal spend. Um, So Biden's looking at carrying forward initiatives to um, create price transparency. And just recently, CMS actually just um, released a call for comments on a final rule relating to price transparency and surprise billing. Um, There are a number of other initiatives as well that the president could also, um, you know, put into play that could impact our system. Um, We're seeing a lot of new legislation or proposed legislation that impacts tax rates, capital gains rates, um, inheritance type taxes and all of that. Um, Although not related to health care, it's an important, I think, initiative coming out of the White House. Um, He's also trying to expand the the reach of care and the ability for individuals across the board to get um, health insurance that's low cost. And so um, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that gets rolled out. Um, Additionally, the Supreme Court just upheld the ACA recently, the uh, Affordable Care Act, which um, was intended to increase, you know, the eligibility of individuals for insurance. So all of that is sort of um, at the forefront of the president's initiatives. And that was a little bit of a surprise to some people in that they thought the conservative court appointed by Trump was going to, you know, not uphold the ACA. Absolutely. So what trends do you think will impact healthcare providers individually? You know, I think that we kind of touched on it, but just the movement of physicians um, and then just the added stress on healthcare providers and the strain on the system, um, you know, with additional caseload and, and canceling elective procedures. And I think there's kind of a backload even um, for some providers who maybe took six or eight months and didn't see any elective patients. And so I think that there's going to be additional, um, you know, stress potentially and in, in higher um, patient volumes. Well, and you touched on the Biden tax proposals and the effect that that um, is having. Is there specific things? I mean, the healthcare providers even should maybe be looking at their personal estate planning. They should. Absolutely. I mean, with the reduction in the threshold that they're proposing for um, transfers and then with the elimination of the step up in basis, I mean, I think that if those go into play um, and the capital gains rates, I mean, I think that it's just an important time to reevaluate your, your financial position and the assets you hold um, and your estate plan to ensure that you're, you've got some tax saving mechanisms in place. I mean, I can tell you that for simple estate plans, potentially, you know, during this whole um, period where the inheritance and, and gift ta- or inheritance taxes were so the li- um, exclusions were so high or uh, deductions were so high, um, you maybe approached it a little differently. Well, now I think we need to reevaluate that because it's pulling tax into individuals that maybe didn't have to face it previously. And it's a balance of all the various different types of taxes. I always kind of laugh as somebody who does primarily tax work about the number of taxes I dealt with when I started practicing versus today. And I think if people really knew the number and types of taxes that affected them, they would be just in shock. So we've seen it in the healthcare industry lately, a shift to mid-level providers. Absolutely. What is going on with that? How does that affect healthcare? Well, a lot of emergency orders were put in place in various states to allow maybe people that individuals, APRNs, mid-levels that weren't licensed in the state to practice in that state. There's also been a really um, strong push to have collaborative um, sharing so that nurses can practice across state lines. I also think that you're seeing sort of the, the amount of care that a mid-level can provide um, sort of being potentially expanded in some respects because to, to defray some of the, um, you know, the workload on the physicians themselves. And so, um, yeah, I see that continuing as a trend. And there can be both positives and negatives to that. We just don't know what that's going to look like yet. Absolutely. And one of the things that I understand is that from the perspective of, let's say, malpractice, you know, my understanding is that people are less likely to sue a nurse practitioner for malpractice. 
Yeah. And a lot of that is because, you know, under the, uh, the statutes, I mean, they give their supervising physician is, is basically usually by state statute responsible for the care of the patient at the end of the day. And so their liability is being pushed to the physician. Um, at least I know that has been kind of common in, in our state. And so, um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, whether with enhanced independence, there becomes sort of more liability on the, the mid-levels. And so you talked earlier about price transparency as a trend. And I'm kind of interested in your thoughts in that generally. And I'm going to expand my question a little bit just because I was at a meeting just recently where a guy handles, is involved in the self-insured plans. And the business owner at that meeting was very aware of the costs of all of the care, how much you know it costs to do each of the procedures, things like that. But I know when I had surgery a year or two ago, I tried to get a copy of the bill and they were like, why do you care? The insurance paid it. I'm like, I want to know how much it costs because I pay this insurance premium every month. So when you say price transparency, who is the transparency to? Because I'm questioning whether there's any true transparency to consumers. That's the hard part here. And I think that independent physic, like independent groups that are doing mostly CPT coding and billing have a much better handle on what their inputs and outputs are and on their expense side. And they can break things down and tell you how much it actually costs for a procedure. It gets more difficult when you get on the facility side with the DRG payments because they're just a bundled payment for everything on the facility side. And at the, you know, when you look at the accounting at the healthcare facility level, I mean, the way they do their, um, you know, code for everything, it doesn't necessarily allocate some of the back end expense into the procedure. And so I think the healthcare systems themselves, like the hospitals, are struggling with what it actually costs because I don't know that they necessarily have the data to provide. And I think that was kind of the rub when Trump started uh, started to push this out was like, I'm sure the facilities were all kind of thinking like, we don't even know what this is. I mean, and when you think about negotiating your payer contracts, you know, you have your Medicare rates, your Medicaid rates, and then each of your individual payer contracts with your, you know, your, your private insurance, Blue Cross Blue Shield, will provide you with a different type of rate, individually negotiated, not shareable between the companies. And so, you know, even you know, what you're getting paid for your hip replacement from Blue Cross versus Medicare versus um, Cigna or Aetna, it, it's different across the board too. So your, your payments coming in are different. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, t- it's a difficult number to get to is what I, is what I, my interpretation is. And my understanding is like, you know, as somebody went to say physical therapy during the last year and has gotten to know the physical therapist and she'll talk about the difference in reimbursements and what codes they can submit if they're submitting for company A versus company B versus company C. And I'm sitting there going, like, really? And so, I, again, at this meeting that I was at recently, and it was a suggestion by a guy who's been in the healthcare industry a really long time, which I found interesting. And he said what we ought to do is have the reimbursement rate for all companies. So each of these different companies, as I understand it, can go – and negotiate different rates. So insurance company A can negotiate different rates and insurance company B. Mm-hmm. And his thought was, well, what if everybody had to use the Medicare reimbursement rates? Wow. I think that would put a lot of hospitals out of business, actually. If you look at your payer mix, and you hate to discuss it, but Medicare pays low. And so many hospital systems, although they won't, you know, it's not usually publicly disclosed, are, you know, able to care for the Medicare patients because it's costing them, you know, a dollar and 20 cents for every dollar of Medicare money that they make, for example. And so the the commercial payers are basically supplementing and allowing for them to stay afloat. So the insurance companies would have to, they'd make a lot more money because mm-hmm. they would be reimbursing less mm-hmm. and they probably wouldn't reduce their premiums, right. right? And the hospitals would go out of business. But somewhere in between there, if we got the Medicare rates up, yeah. 
with that. I just thought it was a reasonable where it was yeah. instead of a one payer system, the comment was a level of payment that, yeah. you know, a Ford with these features is going to cost this much no matter where you buy it, which isn't even true of buying a Ford right. exactly, but it was just an interesting concept. So we've chatted a little bit about the wellness challenges for professionals in general healthcare in particularly, and we're planning on doing a series of podcasts on that, but we'll, you know, you talked a little bit about that earlier, but will, will wellness and mental health be a focus? I think so, for sure. I mean, I think physician burnout, I mean, we, you know, locally have seen, you know, a rising rate of, um, you know, um, suicide and, and you hate to talk about it, but it's something that I think needs to be brought to the, to the forefront of the conversation. And I think that it's important for us to support our healthcare providers and for them also to feel like they can reach out for professional qualified help um, in the instance that they are suffering. I mean, and making sure that that qualified help is, um, you know, maintaining the, the privacy. I mean, I think there's, there's always that, that rub for physicians with how much can I really disclose and will this get out about me? But I think it's just important for healthcare providers in general to feel like they have a qualified outlet and to seek that help when they need it or if. And I think a really important thing that you just said there was qualified help and qualified outlet because what I think happens far too often with professionals, I think it happens in the legal profession as well as the physician profession, both of us have relationships with a variety of professionals in both industries, is that there's a concern about identifying the fact that you're struggling with, hey, alcohol or just a high level of stress, right? Mm -hmm. Or post-traumatic stress, because people think of post-traumatic stress syndrome as being, I went to war, and but that's not necessarily the case. You know, I'm a survivor of the Millard South shooting, and have put you know stress related to that. So what I hear from friends is that because they um, are worried about that stigma or it affecting their job or their position, that they don't go to get qualified help. So hey, maybe they talk with a friend, mm -hmm. and that friend really is make care about them, all that type of thing, but has no background in what they're really dealing with. And so that's like, you know, how do we improve that access to the term you use that's qualified care yeah. without the stigma? And I mean, maybe we don't know the answer to that question, but it's certainly something that ought to be addressed as we go forward. Absolutely. And I know there are some, you know, private ways. And I actually wrote an article on it a couple of years ago for physicians to reach out and get, you know, professional help for issues that they're struggling with that potentially won't trigger sort of like a, um, a licensure issue for them. And I think that, you know, if you're going to, the, the analogy that I give is, you know, if you're going to have a knee replaced, you go to an orthopedic surgeon. If you're going to have an, a baby, you go to an OB. I mean, you know, let's go to the person who's best qualified to provide the care. Right. So you don't call your maybe radiologist friend. Yes. He may be a great radiologist, but maybe not the best advisor on your mental right. health. Absolutely. And maybe he is, but you know, it's, yes. it's, it's, let's go to a qualified pro. So last question for you, how do you predict that technology will impact the healthcare system going forward? Because I think that's going to be a really interesting area. Absolutely. You know, I looked at a, um, an article and they were talking, they basically segmented the patient population based on their age and where they fit within like the adoption of technology. And it's interesting because, you know, we talk about um, patient satisfaction and how that's a key driver. And that's, you know, a metric in most of the health systems um, compensation plans. And they talk about ma making sure the patient feels that like, you know, they're satisfied with their care um, and how when you stratify it out and you look at the different generations, you know, individuals are looking for different things with with what they're, you know, when they seek that care. And in many of the younger generations, they're looking for ease of use, um, you know, 
uh, they want to make it simple. They don't necessarily want to drive 45 minutes down to a campus for their care. I mean, so I think that that is going to change how we, you know, deliver care. I mean, look at what we've done with like grocery shopping, right? Um, There are generations that had never thought that you would have your groceries delivered, would never even consider it. And here we are in a situation now where a lot of younger generations are like, I hope I never have to step foot in a grocery store again. So you kind of look at some of these other industries. And I think healthcare can be a little bit of a behemoth monster (laughs) that that, uh, is slow to change. But I think other industries can provide us with some, you know, just glimmers into what could potentially um, occur in the healthcare industry. Thanks, Stephanie. Do you have any last comments? No, nothing right now. Well, I really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you. So that's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. A Huda Media Production.